Welcome to Reversing Hashimoto show. I am your show host Dr. Anshul Gupta, the world expert in Hashimoto's disease. I help people reverse their thyroid conditions by making personalized functional medicine plans. You can work with me with any part of the country now by making virtual functional medicine appointments. To book an appointment, look at the show notes. In this show, I am going to get experts from all over the world. who are going to share latest information that will help you to reclaim your life back from dreadful thyroid disease so welcome here and we have with us dr alan christensen welcome over here thank you so much glad to be with you dr gupta absolutely let me introduce you first uh, and then we'll get into all the discussions so dr alan christensen is a board certified naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid care He's a New York Times best-selling author whose recent titles include The Thyroid Reset Diet and The Metabolism Reset Diet. Dr. Christensen has been featured on countless media appearances including Dr. Oz, The Doctors and The Today Show. He is a founding president behind the Endocrine Association of Naturopathic Physicians and the American College of Thyroidology. Welcome over here. This is a great, you know, episode. I'm looking for it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yes, I am glad that you are able to make it over here. So much new, exciting stuff is happening in the thyroid field, and definitely you are one of the persons who is at the forefront of all these new things. So I'm excited to share with all this new information with our listeners. That's great. So let's dive in directly to that. So you know, in the Hashimoto's, you know, like there is always a big question of. what causes hashimotos and there is always a lot of discussions and confusions about it so why don't we start with what causes hashimotos in the traditional sense and what are the new things that we have learned about hashimotos disease yeah great question i think it's worth briefly dis- differentiating causes associations and and contributions you know what are the things that really give rise to the disease what are things that often go along with it and what are things that may have some contribution to it and oftentimes all those get thrown together and called causes and they may not all be causes and another point to think about too is of the things that cause the disease which ones can benefit the disease by changing them there's an old expression about you know the horse is out of the barn already you know so the problem has already happened well if the horse is out of the barn closing the barn door doesn't always bring the horse back <laughs> So it's important to identify and treat the cause always, but we've often assumed that every possible thing that may be associated with or correlated with thyroid disease that that thing has to be changed before someone gets better. And they're not all always relevant. There was a recent paper that addressed this question and they discussed about 400 possible things that can be associated with, contributing to or involved with thyroid disease. and they kind of broke them down in those ways. Now, there's two things that are most strongly associated, but those are called existential causes, and those are age and female gender. So we know those are things that are big drivers of the disease, but they're definitely not things that lend us to solutions. And they're not things we can really change or do much about. We know large numbers of genes that are associated with thyroid disease, but the genes also aren't things that really open up new options for us. We can't really change the genetics, and none of them are perfectly predictive on their own. So this large meta-analysis, their conclusion was that there are many apart from the existential causes we can't change. They argued that there are many, many things that may be associated with thyroid disease, 
However, they argue that of them, iodine was the most relevant. And not only did they argue that it was the most relevant, but they argued that it was more relevant than all other possible factors combined. That is big. That is huge. I mean, traditionally, yes, you know, we have thought about, yes, iodine is a big thing, but most people think it's the iodine deficiency, which is driving the Hashimoto's factor. And everybody is taking like, you know, all the iodine supplements. But I think clearly the new research is showing something different. And I know like in the, even in the functional medicine camp, we have two big camps. One is like pro iodine. Yes. Everybody needs to take high doses of it. And the other camp is that, no, 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 you know, we don't have to take any iodine. So we like to definitely share your thoughts of what your research has shown about it. It's a fascinating question. And as a generalization, if one has a, you know, kind of a basic introductory understanding of thyroid function, it's easy to see how that would make sense because the thyroid does need iodine to work. And, you know, in natural medicine, we love to find situations in which there can be simple nutrients we can give to fix complex conditions. And there's many situations where people lack essential nutrients, where we're commonly used to thinking about there being too little. And it's also common to think about nutrients as being largely benign and having no adverse effects. And in so many circumstances, all those things are true, but iodine is so different from all the nutrients. So when we answer questions, it's good to have three lines of evidence. So we want to have some, some mechanistic model. We have some way we know that it could work. And that's one piece. That's not enough. But if that's not there, it's difficult to have a valid explanation. Then we need to see some, some population studies. We need to see how things have played out amongst large groups of people over periods of time. And finally, we need to see interventional data. We need to see what happened in controlled settings when this change was implemented and how it played out. So in terms of mechanistic models, we now know that iodine is, of course, a factor in generating thyroid hormone. What happens is it's really iodide the form that enters the body, and the enzyme thyroid peroxidase oxidizes that into iodine. When it's oxidized, it's ready to get stuck onto a protein called thyroglobulin, and that's how thyroid hormones are made. What we've learned is that that oxidized iodine, when it's in small excesses, it makes thyroglobulin appear to be foreign, and it causes the body to mount an immune response against it. There's just too many free radicals. It breaks down cells and damages protein and the body treats this whole thing as foreign. That's the quick synopsis of the mechanistic argument. In terms of epidemiology, we've had large analysis of populations that have had changes in their iodine status. And we've seen how that plays out in terms of the rates of thyroid disease. You know, simplest one was here in the States. In 1924, we started fortifying iodine in our salt. Um, around Michigan was one of the first areas that, that happened. Over the following decades, the rates of autoimmune thyroid disease went up in women in their ages of 30 to 40 by 26 times, not 26%, by 26 times. It was a very rare disease in the States, but after fortification, it became common. And if someone wishes to look back, they can see there was vitriolic documents going back and forth amongst doctors saying, this is irresponsible. We must stop this. We're unleashing this new disease. And we've also seen the rate of thyroid disease change in other countries after iodine fortification. Every single one that's done that has seen radical increases. The most recent and best scrutinized case was that of Denmark. In the year 2000, they fortified their national iodine intake by roughly 50 micrograms. Um, I won't go into the, yeah, they had Danish rye bread. There's one kind of salt. They did a really good job. They exactly hit their targets. But for the following 17 years that were tracked, the rates of thyroid disease went up by an average of 50% per year. 
And that's rate of new diagnosis, number of people on treatment, rate of procedures, and number of prescriptions for thyroid medications. They all went up in proportion to the iodine intake. So those are a couple of epidemiologic findings. There's many, many others. They're all congruent. There are no cases whatsoever of populations that raised iodine intake and saw lower rates of adult autoimmune thyroid disease. There are cases to where areas that were severely iodine deficient raised iodine intake and saw lower rates of, of pediatric goiter. But even in those cases, they would worsen adult thyroid disease. And we now have no nations that are categorized as severely iodine deficient. That was eradicated back in 2014. So lastly, we have interventional data. And there have now been multiple human clinical trials with control groups in which people with thyroid disease were put on low iodine diets. And if you look at those who complied with the diets, roughly 95 to 97% saw improvements of thyroid function. And a large percent saw a full reversal of thyroid disease in a matter of months. There have also been several trials on the opposite end in which people were given iodine supplementation in various dosages. And in all those trials, it was shown to either exacerbate or initiate unpresent thyroid disease. And that is amazing. So it's basically a two-edged sword, you know, like looks like initially started off with iodine deficiency, but we are dealing with an opposite problem now these days. So it looks like you are thinking that, you know, nobody needs to supplement with iodine at this point of time through a supplement, right? Well, so a couple of things to pull apart there. Um, very cautious about making absolute statements. Uh, I have seen people who are iodine deficient. It's not a common thing, but I have, I saw, for example, I saw a young man many years ago who had been on a raw food only diet for six months. Almost all of his diet was raw broccoli. He was consuming almost no other food. He was developing an iodine deficient goiter. I didn't suggest iodine supplementation for him. I really just suggested him to like eat like a normal, healthy person. <laughs> <laughs> and he was fine. Yeah. So iodine supplementation is difficult. The, the requirements that we have are probably between about 50 to 200 micrograms. So those are the requirements. Now with iodine, we have to distinguish requirements from tolerance. They're not the same thing. So the tolerance for iodine does vary from person to person. And there are some genes that predict that. Uh, those prone to thyroid disease, their tolerance is probably the same as that upper edge of the requirements. So if they get even marginally above their requirements, that 200 micrograms, that can be a problem for them. Now that 200 micrograms or 50 for that low end of requirements is quite easy to achieve. It's not just supplementation. All foods have some, some foods are quite high, but almost no foods have no iodine. We do also obtain that from so many, many topical compounds, cosmetics, yeah, full range of foods. So few, if any, have justification for need of supplementation with it. And furthermore, there have been many analysis done of iodine supplements. Even those that don't have ridiculous doses, the doses they pertain to have are actually never what they actually have when they're assayed. One study took 120 prenatal multivitamins and assayed a randomly chosen 60 of those and compared the actual iodine content from the labeled iodine content. Not a single product was within 5% of target, and many had three to four times the labeled content. So no, I'm not a fan of iodine supplements. <laughs> <laughs> All right, he said. So, you know, definitely you have a lot of reasons. So you said that there are also topical absorption of iodine because most of us will think about that it's basically through foods, you know, like again, the foods which are high in iodine. So talk about this uh, topical application. So you are telling this cosmetics might have iodine in them? 
They do. You know, iodine is a very useful compound. It's a great source of an antiseptic. It makes creams smooth. It keeps them from precipitating solutions out of creams. And it's been widely used in the cosmetic industry. In most commercial products, there's many versions of PVP, polyvinyl pyridone that are used. In the natural products, they'll call those same things kelp extracts or sea vegetable extracts. They're iodine. And it does absorb across intact skin. I did the math on this and found it rather shocking. Uh, shampoos commonly have about one to 2% PVP shampoos and conditioners. And we see that intact, healthy skin absorbs about 4% of iodine and PVP is about 12% iodine. When you run all the math on that, the amount of shampoo or conditioner that a woman could use can commonly cause between one to 2000 micrograms of iodine to enter her bloodstream. So we get a lot from that. One other case in point, iodine was in many topical skin antiseptics. In 2018, the FDA banned its use for that because so many healthcare workers were developing thyroid disease from having unsafe levels of iodine. If you use that in hand antiseptics over and over and over again, you get exposed to too much. And it was found that they were excreting high doses and having problems from that. Wow, that's huge. That is big. You know, and I think most of us, you know, definitely ignore that piece especially like topical absorption of iodine, because I think a lot of these shampoos or skincare products, you know, even share that, you know, kelp is so good for your scalp or for your skin. So a lot of females, you know, for Hashimoto's do have hair problems. So they actually buy those products, which are high in kelp and seaweed. So actually, you know, that might be damaging their body then benefiting them then. For sure. Yeah. Wow. So you kind of actually talked about this mechanistic action. So in Hashimoto's, we see two kinds of antibodies, right? One is a thyroglobulin <laughs> and the other is thyroglobulin. So what you shared was that the thyroglobulin antibodies might be high. That might be because of iodine you know, related to thyroglobulin. Have you seen any correlation with TPO antibodies also with iodine? There has been similar papers on that. And that's also quite intuitive because the job of TPO is to oxidize iodine. So the more iodine is present, the same thing happens. The more free radical damage ensues and the more that the body is prone to attack that particular enzyme. Curious thing about thyroid antibodies, we know that they're actually not the mechanisms for onset of autoimmune disease. <laughs> they're, not, they're not themselves what damage the thyroid. They're often present while the thyroid is being damaged, but they're not the actual things causing that. But we do know that yes, iodine can be a big part of what makes both of them antigenic. So that makes sense because, you know, like, again, a lot of people have Hashimoto's antibodies and again, they might get an understanding that, you know, the iodine might be linked to only one antibody, but, you know, now the iodine is linked to both. So that is, again, definitely a big cause over here. Well, and even further, many with Hashimoto's never have measurable antibodies. You know, we see that somewhere around uh, half of people, if you define Hashimoto's by having antibodies, then that's confusing. They say, well, they, they can't have it. But we know that Hashimoto's is a histologic diagnosis. It's a disease of cell structure. So when Hashimoto's is evaluated via cell analysis, and you look back and say, okay, of those who on biopsy clearly have Hashimoto's, how many had positive thyroid antibodies? We see that it's somewhere around half. So a large number of those with Hashimoto's never have measurable thyroid antibodies. And I think that's a new concept. You know, I think previously a lot of people had no idea that there's an existence of, you know, a thyroid antibody negative Hashimoto's too. And I think in the recent mm -hmm. couple of papers have talked about it. So let's talk about it. So when you say that the antibodies can be negative in these people with Hashimoto's, so then what kind of diagnostic picture are we looking at these folks? Then how do we diagnose that they have Hashimoto's or how, how can people know about it? 
Well, ultimately, Hashimoto's, in most cases, is a clinical diagnosis. We're really looking for some cause of hypothyroidism. In many cases, if there are certain hallmark changes to the thyroid on ultrasound structure, that can confirm it. We may see hypervascularity. We may see hypoechoic regions. We may see other changes such as microcalcification. So those things can cause it to show up. Biopsy is the one only real rule out for Hashimoto's, but there's no recommendations to do it for that purpose. So if someone has hypothyroidism, their antibodies are negative. One thought is if their ultrasound confirms it or not, if the ultrasound doesn't confirm it, but there's still yet no other explanation for hypothyroidism, many guidelines do assume that it is autoimmune. Well, so again, if there is no goiter present, the conventional way of looking at thyroid disorder is that nobody does an ultrasound. So in your clinical picture, do you do ultrasounds in almost all the thyroid patients? We do. And there are some debates back and forth about that recommendation. A concern is over diagnosis of thyroid nodules, you know, over treatment of early findings that may be benign. And, but the rates of thyroid cancer are radically on the increase. We know that they've gone up roughly threefold over the last several decades. And that's been locked. And that's also a strong correlation with population-wide iodine exposure, the risk of thyroid cancer. And it is more prevalent in those that have autoimmune thyroid disease. So both in terms of understanding the nature of one's disease, also in terms of targeting therapies, and then also in terms of assessing risk, I do encourage ultrasound for those with autoimmune thyroid disease. And do you follow that systematically? Like, you know, once you do the ultrasound after the treatment with you, do you see a change in the ultrasound or you have to follow them along? Uh, yes. And the, the follow-up is certainly based upon the findings. You know, some need much more than others, given the structure of their glands. But nodules are quite prevalent, as are other abnormalities, and somewhere around 3 to 5% of nodules are precancerous. So they are good to be aware of. And yeah, they're quite common. And thankfully, a lot of the lifestyle type steps that we can talk about, they can reduce and they can come down as general autoimmunity does. Well, that is great. So, I mean, we discuss about, you said, you know, like initially discussions that there are certain causes and certain associations. So we definitely talked about iodine being one of the biggest causes of Hashimoto's or thyroid disorders. What are the other causes that you have seen, you know, definitely playing a big role in Hashimoto's? I would move on to associations from here, because as far as causal factors, really age, genetics, gender, iodine exposure, those are things clearly known to be causal factors. Associations are almost endless. You know, we can find that those that have um, Hashimoto's have higher rates of antibodies of Epstein-Barr virus. We can see that they have higher rates of having celiac disease. There's endless things that are associated with that. But these are all factors that if they are relevant to one's health, they're certainly good to be aware of and to address. But we don't have good data that doing so really changes the course of their, of their thyroid disease. So you bring about an important point is that, you know, previously it was thought that, you know, thyroid disease, once you get it, you know, there is no way to kind of reverse it. But now the new research thinks that there is a possibility of reversing it. So what has changed in the field of thyroid disorders and why can we feel that it can be reversed now? Yeah. So I'd like to pull out two populations for that. So one is those that are medication naive, they're called. They're, they've not been given thyroid medication. And there's those that have been on medication for some time. So in the medication naive population, one trial took people that had had disease for roughly four years. They had average TSH scores of 14. So they were markedly hypothyroidism. This group was all antibody positive and they had not been on thyroid medication. They also had had relatively stable levels for the last year. So it wasn't that this was the one time they were bad and all the rest of the time they were good. They'd pretty much been that way for some time. 
And they only did low iodine diets with these people. And they honestly didn't even do very thorough low iodine diets. They didn't talk about topical exposure or a lot of common hidden food sources. And what they saw was that within three months, 78.3% had fully normal thyroid function. The group's TSH average moved from 14 down to three. So 78.3%. But when you dig a little deeper, they saw that many were not compliant. And of those who didn't respond, nearly all were in the non-compliant category. And then the other group was those to where their initial TSH scores were in the 50-50 to 200 range. So they were markedly hypothyroid. Those people improved, but many of them did not yet normalize. They just weren't given enough time to come down there. So if we redefine that and say, of those who complied, how many had some big change in, in function? That's where I've derived that earlier 95 to 97% number. So yeah, different studies like that, the range has been 95 to 97% that either normalizes or radically improves. If you look at those that were compliant. <laughs> that is now the other population, oh, go ahead. I said, that is huge though. That number is pretty good. That's pretty darn good. Yeah. <laughs> That's much better than the rate of efficacy of thyroid treatment with medication as far as improving symptoms and well-being. And then for those on medication, there've been a couple of big recent studies about the idea of de-prescribing. You know, can they come off? Do they need medication in the first place? Do they still need it? Do they get better in the interim time? And what those have found, some papers gave no guidelines other than just lowering medication and tracking people. And they started with those who had overt and subclinical hypothyroidism. And most found that about 40% of people could successfully just de-prescribe and have no ill effects from that. Their scores would stay stable and they'd see no worsening of symptoms. One more recent paper gave some basic recommendations for avoiding iodine supplements and avoiding high sources of dietary iodine. That paper also chose those that were primarily had subclinical hypothyroidism. So they had TSH elevations, but didn't yet have drop-offs of T4 levels. And they saw roughly 85% could reduce medication with no adverse effect. And of those, over half could completely de-prescribe. They could just taper and come off and levels could stay stable and no symptoms would manifest. That is huge, you know, because obviously, you know, like once the person go on thyroid medicine, nobody wants to stop the medicine. And that is right. a conventional way of taught. doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even like when patients come to see me in my practice and they want to come off the medicine and sometimes you're able to get them off and they're doing really good symptom wise, their TSH does increase slightly, you know, not too bad, mm -hmm. but they obviously get scared. Okay. Well, my TSH is high. I should be on medicine. But what you're telling us is that, you know, in those folks, even though TSH is slightly high, but if they are feeling better, then there is no reason for them to go back on the medicine, right? You bring up a really good point. So I, I differentiate um, subclinical from overt hypothyroidism. So subclinical disease, the TSH is high. Some guidelines put a number on it. Some don't. Some say it can be as high as the moon, but many say between you know 10 to 10 to 15. They also don't yet have T4 well below range. It can be low normal, but it's not well below range. So in those cases, that's a scenario most people find themselves in when they are put on thyroid medication. Now, the truth is that situation certainly can correlate with a negative change of thyroid function. And that certainly can correlate with a big range of symptoms. However, we've assumed in medicine that if this situation can cause symptoms, that reversing these blood levels with medication should reverse those symptoms. But we now have massive data sets saying that it's just not true. So people with subclinical disease are more apt to be symptomatic. They're more apt to have early mortality. They're more apt to have a progression of thyroid disease 
and they're more apt to have other diseases emerge. And we now have just conclusive data that medication helps none of those four things. It doesn't help people feel better or lose weight. It doesn't cut the risk of progression of disease. It doesn't take away the risk of changes of lifespan. And it doesn't cut the risk of associated diseases like heart disease. Basically, medicine is useless. <laughs> well, so those that have overt hypothyroidism or those that have surgical hypothyroidism, medications are needed. And with overt disease, they can be helpful. They're not always needed, but they can be useful. But yeah, those that are athyrotic, they do not have a thyroid, they're necessary and life-saving. But many are put on them. And this has been this is the big enigma. So many people are on thyroid medications and they can't figure out why they don't feel better. You know, if the whole core problem was simply that there was too few of these medications present, too few of these hormones present, this should be the solution. But we've known that for most people, it just doesn't help. And now we know that it was a, it was a fool's errand. It wouldn't have helped because they didn't have conditions in which they would have been useful. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a big dilemma with all of the thyroid patients is that significant number of those, even after taking the medicines, their symptoms do not get better. In fact, they continue to get worse over the course of years. And the only thing that has been done is that, oh, let's increase the dose of the medicine, but they don't feel better. And most people do not understand those medicines are not doing anything for the underlying issues which are going on with the thyroid disorder. Yeah. And back to, we spoke up before. So iodine creates the situation in which the immune system attacks the thyroid, but it also works in two other ways. So the thyroid has a linear relationship between how much iodine comes in and how much hormone goes out. Because of that, if we get too much, our body could put out too much hormone, but we have a safety mechanism that prevents that from happening. And that's called the wolf chaikoff effect. That's active in most people. For some, it's not, and they're a little bit different. But for most people, higher doses of iodine not only cause the body to attack the thyroid, they directly slow the thyroid. They put a parking brake on the thyroid. So when someone's in that circumstance and they take thyroid medication, they're ingesting massive amounts of more iodine. Thyroid medicines all have high amounts of iodine. So it worsens that side of it. The other part of it is the body also resists thyroid hormone in circulation. So the mechanisms that allow thyroid hormones to become activated or taken up across cell membranes, the body digs in its heels. It fights against that. So adding more hormone doesn't help because the core problem is not simply a lack of hormone. It's an inhibition of the body's own output. It's an autoimmune attack against the thyroid and it's peripheral resistance against the use of this hormone. Absolutely. Wow. That, that's great. So most of your folks, when you put them on the low iodine diet, is that generally enough for them to feel better and do good? Or generally it requires much more than that? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome question. So I think about really reversing thyroid issues as three big parts. And that that's one of the three big ones for many that see my doctors, they are on medication already. And even if it weren't helpful, if it wasn't necessary for them, it's still there and we still have to deal with it. So it's important that what they're taking is appropriate for them. It's a reasonable dose. It's a type that's most compatible for them. So that's one of those three steps. And even if they don't need it longer term, we have to make sure it's not a hindrance, that it's not blocking the results more than it would have to. The other one is really regulating their iodine, making sure that they have all the capacity to heal themselves. The third one, this is important. People with thyroid disease, 84% um, have, for example, latent iron depletion. That's one of 15 conditions I call comorbidities. And each of these 15 conditions, there's a high rate of them in those who have thyroid disease. So we see things like late iron depletion, parathyroid disease, anemias, fatty liver disease. There's all these conditions that are really common in those who have thyroid disease. Sometimes it's because they're common in the same demographics. 
Sometimes thyroid disease causes it. Other times thyroid treatment makes it more likely. But in any case, there's these other conditions there that contribute to the persistent symptoms. And so a lot of folks who are struggling to get their medications right because they don't feel well, they're not feeling well has nothing to do with that, or it's partially related to that. So it also takes really uncovering and addressing these other comorbidities to help them feel better. Well, that's great. You know, because again, a lot of people think thyroid disease is simple. Okay, well, you have a thyroid hormone deficiency, just take the pill and everything will be solved. You know, most people right. don't understand that there is so many layers to it that needs to be addressed and to feel better. So I'm glad that looks like you guys are doing a very, you know, like in-depth analysis and in-depth work with these folks. So, which is awesome. The last thing which, you know, we definitely would like to touch base on is the iodine testing. Because again, you know, like a lot of people have this question, well, how do I know I have enough iodine or when I'm low in iodine? And then we know that there's a lot of controversy around what is the best test or is there a best test to check for iodine? I wish there was a really good, simple one. And the truth is there's just not. The American Third Association said this quite recently. And the tricky thing is that iodine is so ubiquitous in the environment. And then also because iodine exists in different compartments within the human body. So we have it in our urine, our blood, and our thyroid. And at the extreme, extreme levels, these things have some relationship. If someone has you know, a silly scenario, if they had no iodine in their bodies, they would register low in all areas but that doesn't happen at that level. And on the other side, at extreme toxicity. So if someone's like on a medication like amiodarone, which can have hundreds of milligrams of iodine, yeah, they'll be high on any way they could test. But those scenarios are such outliers. So in real world situations, the question is, how can you gauge iodine in an individual? The other consideration is, there's a lot of ways to gauge it in populations. Once you're talking about groups of hundreds of people, a lot of the goofiness of individual tests level out and become irrelevant. You know, you can, you can have an inaccurate test that you measure over hundreds and hundreds of people, and you can still be accurate for that population, but you can't be accurate for any individual. And that's the case for urinary iodine tests, 24 hour. Um, there's a urinary challenge iodine test. That's a popular thing in functional medicine. The assumption behind it is that if you take iodine and you don't pee it all out in a day, your body wanted it. And the truth is your urinary excretion does relate to your intake, but the disconnect is not by tomorrow. <laughs> There've been a lot of studies of populations that change iodine intake and their urinary output changes within three to six months, but not in a day. And there was actually a large study done just showing that they did this loading test with people and saw that their urinary output increased, but it stayed high for days and days and days afterward. It wasn't all done in a day. So the loading test never really was a legitimate test. Uh, the urinary tests, whether they're random or 24 hours, many papers have shown that to apply them to an individual, you need two to 300 samples that you have to average. And that's just completely impractical. So there are also serum tests that are quite popular. Now the serum test, the difficulty there is that blood levels of iodine are highly buffered. Iodine doesn't stay in the blood for very long. The only times that it elevates in the blood is when the kidneys cannot excrete it. So there's a range of iodine that's in the nutritional range, and that can be you know, excess, normal, mildly deficient, whatever. But then there's a range of iodine in toxicology, and that's where iodine starts to become fatal. That's where serum iodine can pick up. So if a patient was given a very high dose of iodine or recurrent doses like amiodarone or contrast. And three to six months later, if they're having symptoms you think might be associated, a serum test can tell you that. If their body has still so much iodine they can't excrete it, that'll show up in the serum level. 
but the serum has no relationship whatsoever between the iodine in the thyroid gland. So there simply are no accurate tests. Now there's one test that can gauge iodine excretion. This doesn't gauge nutritional status of iodine. It doesn't say how much you have in your body. It shows how much you're eliminating. That's a urinary iodine to creatinine ratio. And the, really the one place that's helpful is when someone's been on a low iodine diet and they're not seeing results. If they've been doing that for three months, they're not seeing improvement. They can do a urinary iodine to creatinine ratio test. If their scores are greater than hundred micrograms of iodine per gram of creatinine, either there's still some iodine coming in or they were exposed to so much in the past, they're just not done dumping it yet. So that's, that's the one place it's useful. Some of the studies looking at low iodine diets and finding them to be helpful for people, they even did partition people based upon their iodine status on tests. And they found that urinary or serum iodine levels had no predictive value to see who could or who could not improve by low iodine diets. So yeah, intuitively you would think, I'll just test and see if I'm high and if I'm high, I'll stop. And if I'm not, I won't worry. But that's been tried. That's just doesn't, it's not predictive. <laughs> That's kind of interesting because a lot of folks that come to see us also, they have this question, okay, well, because they've always heard that everybody on thyroid needs to be on an iodine supplement. So once we try to stop them, everybody says, can I do a test to confirm that, you know, yeah. I don't have it. So obviously everybody gets scared. Um, have you seen any other ways of assessing the iodine status of a patient, like maybe symptoms or any other things? Um, symptoms, there's no relationship between symptoms and iodine status, none that are validated. Uh, there's so many general symptoms that can come from countless causes and, and none are iodine specific, really. Uh, there are also skin tests that have been talked about, and those are kind of are popular in functional medicine. You know, you paint iodine on your skin. If it goes away, the, the rationale is if it goes away, your body needed it and sucked it up. If it stayed there, you didn't need it. Um, that was debunked in 1932. <laughs> <laughs> there was a big study. They had, they had um, animals and humans and human cadavers they were all painted with iodine and they were all tracked. Some had good thyroid function, some did not. And there's no relationship between how you absorb iodine as whether or not you're living or dead or whether your thyroid's working or not. Most of it just goes in the air. So there sadly is just no accurate screening test, but we do have such population-wide data that unless someone is on a very unusual diet and they consume no salt that contains iodine, like Himalayan salt, or no salt with added iodine, like most others, they consume no iodine supplements, they only consume raw fruits and vegetables. Barring those cases, people, iodine deficiency is not the cause of the problem. Right. And reducing iodine doesn't fix all thyroid disease, but it does for a very high percent of people. And it is a safe thing for someone to, to try. That was my next question, actually. Do you feel that you know it is safe for almost like you know a normal person with a thyroid disorder to give it a try to the low iodine diet on their own? This has been studied and there are, there are no negative drawbacks. There's a lot of talk in functional medicine about iodine doing a lot of other things outside of thyroid function, like protecting against breast cancer, all sorts of odds and ends. The short answer is that there was a group of iodine, I don't know, legends or ideas that were spawned by a gentleman back in 2002. And they've kind of grown and taken on traction. And I was, I, I, he's no longer living. Uh, this is Guy Abrams. I spoke to him in person quite a bit. I read through all of his works. A lot of his ideas were intriguing. They made a lot of sense. They influenced many other people. Many other doctors have taken his work and has written it verbatim and passed it on as if it's newer novel. 
but it's just not true. <laughs> you know, to briefly mention the breast cancer thought, some are fearful that if they lower their iodine, they'll hurt their, you know, cause harm to their breast health. Well, the exact opposite seems to be true. So Japanese women consume more iodine. They do have lower rates of breast cancer. However, not because of their iodine. Within Japanese women, their iodine intake is predictive of their breast cancer risk. So their, their excretion of iodine predicts their risk of breast cancer. And that's shown up in many other populations as well. And we now know there's some reasons for that, like the iodine symporter found in breast tissue and highly expressed in breast cancer. So yeah, it's, it's safe to, it's safe to do. <laughs> that's good. I mean, a lot of people, you know, like feel that in the developed countries, you know, we have enough iodine, but there are still other countries which might still have deficiency of iodine. But from yeah. what I hear from you is that almost like the iodine deficiency is not a thing anymore. Is that correct? Yeah, the World Health Organization has defined six levels of iodine status globally, and they've tracked this quite closely pre and post fortification, even those that have never undergone fortification. Back in 92, there was 112 countries that were considered severely iodine deficient, and there was none that were considered at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess. Between 92 and 2014, those numbers changed dramatically. By 2014, there were now zero nations considered severely iodine deficient. Uh, and there's only seven that are considered mildly deficient as of 2018, and those were Sub-Saharan Africa. Even at mild iodine deficiency, we see lower rates of adult autoimmune thyroid disease than we do at higher levels. So the number of countries that are considered at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess that went from zero in 92 to 52 in 2014. And the United States is one of those countries. Wow, that's huge. You know, like, you know, it seems like, you know, we have so much myths going around uh, that, you know, each and of us is low in iodine. Everybody needs to take it. Even normal folks, a lot of folks are like pushing so much on taking the iodine and it's totally opposite of what we should, should all be doing then. Well, and for many people, I mentioned how iodine tolerance does vary. Requirements don't vary apart from just body size and gender, but tolerance does vary. And for many people, they can tolerate excess and have no ill adverse effects from that, but they're just not those prone to get thyroid disease. So that's the easiest way of knowing your iodine tolerance is if you've developed thyroid disease or you have signs of it. Absolutely. No, absolutely. That makes sense. Gosh, we have covered so much, you know, about iodine and everything. Any other, you know, things that we have not covered that you want to share with our audience? You know, the big message I'd love to share with them is that watch the summit, check it all out. Please know you can get better. That information like you're learning from Dr. Gupta, this is life-changing. And after treating thyroid disease in clinical practice for like 25 years, I'm more optimistic now than ever. You know, I used to think that it was harder to come off of medication. It was harder to reverse symptoms, but there's been so much exciting new data. I'm glad you've got a chance to be exposed to some of that. I'm honored to be able to share some of my insights as part of this, but please know that you can get better. That information like this is powerful. Don't ever think that you're stuck with symptoms or stuck with your body being unable to heal. There's much more potential than you'd ever imagine. Absolutely. Those are great words of wisdom, everybody. That gives a lot of hope to people because, you know, everybody just feels once they get the thyroid, that's the end of the story and they cannot just get better from it. So thank you for sharing that hope. So tell the audience where they can find you. You know, easiest thing is drchristensen, drchristensen.com. That's the hub of everything I put out. And yeah, the, the thyroid reset diet, you can have information about that there. The low iodine diet, I talked about how to do that in a way that's quite simple. The cool thing about it is that if you're already paleo, vegan, gluten-free, whatever, that's fine. You don't have to change any of those things. I think a lot of those things 
might help because they end up cutting out a lot of iodine along the way. But any diet you're on or you like, you can easily make a low iodine version of. And if you just eat healthy foods, there's so few things you have to work around. You've got a ton of food options for that as well. So it's, it's quite simple. And we've had tons of remarkable cases. There was someone that just wrote in about their TSH went from 72 to normal in the course of a couple of weeks. We, we see this stuff all the time. So the body can change and diet and lifestyle are powerful. You've got a lot of control in your own hands. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. So thank you again so much for sharing all this wisdom. Um, thank you so much for coming over here. My pleasure. Thank you for doing the event.